Good morning and welcome to another edition of From Sunday to Monday. And this is another edition that it was being that is being recorded on a Tuesday. Uh, maybe Tuesday is going to be the new recording day. I don't know. Jonathan, how Tuesday, are you doing? Tuesday is the new Monday. I'm Tuesday. doing great. Uh, this is a great week because tomorrow I celebrate 20 years of marriage to my lovely wife. 20 years, man. That is awesome. Congrats. Welcome to the 20-year club. Thank you. Thank it's you. a good club. It's it is a good, a good club. club. Okay, what do you got planned? Well, we're just going out for lunch actually today, but then we're taking a 10-day trip to Scandinavia in May. Wow. So a place we've never been, just explore, just the two of us. So. That's awesome. Do you like to go just explore new things? Yes, we do. We've got, we've got a Rick Steves guide to, to Europe, and so that'll help. But That's fun. Yeah. My, my son and I are going on a spring break trip, and he keeps pushing me for an itinerary. Ah. And I kept telling him, we don't need an itinerary. We've got a credit card. That's all you need. That's right. And you've been to the Grand Canyon. I've been so. there. It's not like you can get lost and die in there. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> that was a bad joke. Sorry. All right. Well, we got a lot of great questions today. So, uh, Jonathan, start firing away, and let's get uh, let's get going. We do. I thought we'd, we'd start with a couple questions that followed up on your sermon Sunday. You're preaching about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, mm-hmm. uh, facing death and asking God the Father um, if the, the cup could possibly pass from him, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So a couple of que- follow-up questions to what you preached about. One question was, if Jesus had no sin nature, how can he be like us? Isn't that different and an unfair advantage for Jesus? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, he is made like us in all ways except sin. And so that is giving him uh, a huge difference between us and him. But first of all, the, the key here to remember is not, we're not in competition with Jesus. Uh, he is different from us uh, so that he can save us. Um, to be upset somehow about how he is different would be like, uh, C.S. Lewis gives a great illustration. He says, that's like a man who is drowning, and he looks up at a person on the riverbank who's throwing him a rope and he sa- and, and saying, well, it's not fair. You're on the riverbank. <laughs> you, know? uh, you have an advantage over me. Well, yeah, it's that advantage that allows him to save. Um, he is like Adam. Adam did not have a sin nature. And uh, the Bible says he is the second Adam. And the important thing is that he uh, has been tempted the way we are tempted. He's faced all the same temptations, the same types of temptations that we have faced. But, uh, but he did not have a sin nature, and he did not give in. He did not sin. And, uh, and he acted with perfect obedience to God, even doing uh, this great act of going to the cross and dying for us. The act that uh, he did not was not required by anything other than his love and his desire to save, uh, and he never faltered. And now that his obedience, his perfect obedience, has made it possible for us to come into the Father's home and to come into his father, the Father's uh, gaze and his smile, and, and to enjoy that without any fear of being cast away. So uh, our Great, the greatest thing anyone can ever say is that Jesus did not sin. He had no sin nature. And therefore, when God looks upon us, he looks upon us with all the joy and pride 
uh, of God looking upon us as though we had no sin nature. I think that's a really great point to talk about Adam, because when we look at the creeds of the church and they say that Jesus was fully God and fully man, um, you know, we may say, but, but it seems to be hu- to be part of humanity to sin. Well, our original design and how Adam and Eve were originally in the garden, they did not have sin, but they had the ability to sin or not to sin. And so Jesus was like Adam in that way and, and like us in all ways, yet without sin. Yeah, praise the Lord. Second question that came following up from the sermon was, was this. I always thought that the wrath of God and the punishment for sin was the cross and God hiding his face from Jesus during his crucifixion. Are you saying that God punished Jesus more between Jesus's last breath and the resurrection, some kind of hell in God's presence? Um, That's a great question. And I don't really know what I said to stimulate the question, but Let's let's look at that whole issue of how God, how Jesus suffered the wrath of God. And Jesus began uh, suffering the wrath of God, suffering the the weight of sin uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, the whole the process of being betrayed, of being tried and found innocent, but yet convicted uh, for another person's behalf. The um, the beatings, the mockery, the shame, all of that is Jesus paying for sin, overturning sin. Uh, there, there's, there's, beautiful, there's beauty there both in the process of how he did it and even in the, the, the symbolism that was true symbolism. Uh, one of my favorite pictures is of him having a crown of thorns put upon his head. And we're told in Genesis 3 that the result of sin is that the, the ground would bring forth thorns. And here we have Jesus really having a crown of, of thorns, this ultimate symbol of, of the results of sin, the futility of sin, the curse. And uh, he has made the, the curse into a crown. Um, it's a beautiful picture of how he bore our sin for us. And uh, the, the very lowest point, the, de- the deepest that this... A punishment went to was when he does the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where God the Father himself actually turns away from his son and forces Jesus to experience utter darkness, no longer experiencing the light of his father's countenance. And then from there, Basically, the process begins an upward turn toward Easter. Um, as far as what Jesus experienced, you know, when did the sin, the punishment for sin end? When did that end? Honestly, we're just not sure. There, There's a variety of things that, that would go on. For, for One thing is, you know, Jesus clearly paid for sin in his body. And since his body was lying in the grave, being under the power of death, was part of that penalty, was part of that payment. So in some ways, yet his body at least was still paying the penalty of sin until the resurrection when death no longer had a hold on him. Um, his soul, he, were t- he, tells the, uh, he tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, and he commends his soul into the, the hands of his father. And so 
many Orthodox uh, Protestant theologians believe that basically the spiritual aspects of his paying paying for sin, suffering for sin, ended uh, when he said, it is finished, and into your hands I commit my spirit. There are other traditions that, that talk about Jesus going into hell, uh, preaching maybe maybe to suffer, maybe to preach the gospel. There's a strange text in Second Peter that honestly nobody knows what it means. Yeah. Um, so we're not completely sure, but I, I do believe that the, the, the greatest penalty, the greatest suffering, the spiritual agony uh, of Christ, um, paying for sin, did take place on the cross. Did it end immediately? Um, maybe. We, we, I, you know, you, I, you just can't be extremely and, and particularly precise when the, the Bible is not. So, Jonathan, what would you add to that? Well, I would say I'm glad you waded into the answer here because <laughs> I know there's been a lot written about what happened between the moment when Jesus breathed his last and when he rose from the grave. And we're just not really sure. And uh, a lot of great theologians have written different things. And, uh, but I think the main point is that I think you were making is, is that that weekend in that big event is when all history changed. Mm-hmm. And Jesus did do all that was necessary to save us, to satisfy righteousness, the law's requirements, and to satisfy the wrath of God, mm-hmm. and then rise to give us new life, yeah, and to make all things new. And the details are are a little mysterious. Well, and, and there's a process too. I mean, you could say he began suffering for sin at the incarnation, sure. and and experiencing poverty, experiencing uh, all the the miseries of this life, certainly started during his childhood immediately when he was born and had to be, uh, be you know, became a, a, a refugee uh, fleeing the wrath of Herod from the very moment he was born. And, you know, when did it really end? You could say it, it didn't completely end until he w- uh, ascended to the right hand of the father. And, um, and so that would be 40 days after the resurrection. So, it really just depends on exactly what you're talking about, and there will always be debate. But the great thing is that uh, that he has finished the work. Good. Moving on, um, this question's a, a kind of new area. Um, the question is, how can a Christian fight self-doubt? Mm. In other words, how can we apply the gospel when we're plagued by questions like, am I just a really convincing fake Christian? I mm. don't know it. Or how do I know my repentance is genuine? Or how do I know if I'm really repenting in order to be reconciled to God? Or if I'm just afraid of hell and I'll do anything to avoid Mm it? It's really hard to test yourself and to trust Jesus. When you're afraid, you may not see yourself clearly. and You may not truly be trusting Jesus. Mm -hmm. Those are great questions. You know, the, the beauty is that it's Jesus that matters. And uh, your repentance is not completely sincere. I'll just go ahead and save you the trouble. Your faith is not uh, perfect. It's not even close. It's faulty. It's uh, there. There are parts of your faith that are selfish. Of course, you know. Do I do I believe because I love Jesus, or do I believe because I don't want to go to hell and I want to go to heaven? Isn't that a selfish desire? Well, yeah, it's a selfish desire. Uh, that's why you need Jesus. You need Jesus because your desires are selfish. You need Jesus because your 
uh, repentance is faulty. You need Jesus because your faith is weak. And the beauty is that you have him. Um, you know, there's a great uh, illustration that Donald Carson used, I believe, at Gospel Coalition this last year, where he's talking about the first Passover and two, two uh, Israelites, two Hebrews, talking about what's going to happen tonight, the day before the Passover. And uh, one is saying how worried he is that the angel of death is going to come through and how scared he is that maybe he hasn't done everything just right and is, is his firstborn going to die. And the other one is confident and he says, well, I've done everything Moses told me to do. Of course we're going to survive. It's going to be a great night. And, and you know, one goes into that night terrified. The other one goes into that night with great confidence. And then the, the question is, which one of these two will survive uh, the Passover? And the glorious answer is they both survive the Passover because the ground of their salvation is the blood of the Lamb. It's not the quality of their faith. And um, self-doubt will, will only resolve itself when you realize that it's not the quality of your faith or the quantity of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that matters. Uh, Jesus did not fail. That's the only thing that matters. Uh, and don't and honest and I, I don't say this to kind of chastise you, but I do want to get your eyes off of yourself. Stop. Basically, what you're saying is, I would feel better if only I had perfect repentance. Yes. I would feel better if only I had perfect intentions. Well, stop trying to save yourself, mm-hmm. and and trust the one who has died to save you. Uh, Jesus had perfect repentance. He repented for sins he didn't even commit. That's why he had to be baptized. Uh, he repented for us. He, he believed the Father for us. He, he's done all these things for us. Just receive him and, uh, and let your confidence be in him. I think, Ricky, that's why the church is so important. Mm-hmm. Because for believers, especially struggling with these subjective elements of faith and trust, the church really does hold out objective things to place our faith in. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, can you agree with the basic Apostles' Creed that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners? If, if you believe that, that's great. But also, when you look at the church, you've been baptized. Mm-hmm. That is a mark of belonging to Christ. Mm-hmm. You become a member of the church. You're taking communion. That those are not absolutes, and the Bible even warns us in some places that uh, some can do it with no faith. But those are objective things to say: you are in the faith, yeah. You are yeah. in Christ, and find your comfort in those things. Yeah, well, my uh, my history professor's favorite story from uh, Scottish Presbyterian history was of a uh, a lady in a Scottish church who was just so afraid she would never take communion. Because she just didn't believe that she had believed enough. She didn't believe that her faith was genuine enough. She didn't believe that she had repented of her sins completely. And so she was afraid that if she took communion, it would be uh, faulty. And she would be eating and drinking to her own judgment. And and her pastor one day just called her by name and said, Take it, take it, Jenny. It's for sinners. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's that's what we have to remember. Our, our faith is in a God who loves sinners so much that He gives His Son for us. Not, not our, our faith is not in what's going on within us. You know, we don't look to ourselves and go, "Yes, I'm clearly a Christian. Look how great I am." 
Uh, our faith is in what Jesus has done for us. A follow-up question from the same uh, email was this. Romans 14.23 says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. Hmm. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This passage has been applied many different ways. How does it apply to our daily lives? Are we being instructed to do absolutely nothing that we're not 100% sure God is okay with? Some of us are doubt factories. And it's really hard to understand what to do with this scripture when we seem to be doubting and fearful about nearly everything from time to time. What do you think about that? Well, I, you know, I, I'm very sorry that, I mean, living in, in that continual doubt is hard. I've gone through that period myself. And I really think, you know, the, the, the biggest dose of medicine for you is to reflect upon the gospel, to really meditate on it until you believe that Jesus wants you, uh, until you believe that God wants you, that he, he wants to be with you. I know that sounds too good to be true, but it, it is true. That's what the Bible teaches. And then, you know, what, what the Apostle Paul is doing in that text that you referred to, I believe it's in Romans 14, is he's, he's giving us freedom. He's saying, look, there, there are always going to be things that you're just not sure. Is it right or wrong? Should I, uh, you know, should I drive a car if a car is hurting the environment? Is it, you know, is this the right thing or the wrong thing? But he, he's giving us a, a freedom that the Lord has, is with us and he's, he's at work in us and and so when there are, he's Paul is talking about a very specific thing, uh, eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And some people say, "Hey, we got this meat on on sale. This is good meat. I'm hungry. I'm going to eat it." Other people are saying, "But you can't eat this. It's been used for a pagan ritual." And Paul's saying, "Look, if you believe that what you're doing is wrong, if you believe that what you're doing is against God's law." then don't do it because you'd be you'd be acting in rebellion. But if you can do it in peace, then do it. it, it it's not clearly forbidden in God's law. Um, we have those issues today. You know, people have struggle with with voting. Uh, you know, sh- who should they vote for? Uh, the question we talked about a few weeks ago, Jonathan, if you get invited to go to a homosexual wedding, would you go? Uh, if you don't think you can go in a clear conscience, don't go. If you're If you're going... And there's this part of you that's in rebellion saying, yeah, I'm just going to go. God God doesn't want me to do this, but I'm just going to do it anyway to put my fist in his face. Then don't do it. That would be an act of rebellion. Right. But if you can go with a clear conscience, then maybe it is okay for you to go. I'm not trying to bring that question back up because it's a very hard question. But I am saying that your conscience is part of the Holy Spirit's work uh, to guide you. But it's, it's not here. He, he's not trying to condemn your Christianity. He's trying to give you some kind of yardstick to use when you're dealing with moral issues that aren't clearly taught in the Bible? That's a good answer. Next question comes from a from a different source, but kind of refers to what we've been talking a little bit about. It's this, can you explain the importance of a believer being part of the body mm. and why this is a gracious gift from God, especially in light of many Christians being harmed by the church? Well, as you know, Jonathan, uh, the reason I started this church, uh, what I believe the Lord called me to do is to, to reach people who've been harmed by the church. And I understand the church has, uh, in its legalism and, and judgmentalism, has been very painful for a lot of people. And I'm, and so we want to start a church that's like Jesus, that gets away from guilt and shame and is giving people the, the good news of the gospel. 
And uh, but what I would say to folks who think somehow they're better off without the church is you you need us and we need you. Uh, you need that that encouragement uh, that that continual blessing of of knowing that the Lord is smiling upon you. Uh, this was hammered home to me so well at my sister's funeral four years ago when I was there and we had probably a thousand people come through that night just to tell us they loved us. And I was thinking about the resurrection and thinking about my sister and how hard it is to really believe in the resurrection of the body. And the thought just struck me. Uh, I would never be able to believe in the resurrection if I were by myself. I need a community of people around me um, who help me believe in it. We we believe what the people around us believe. And... um, and when the people around us are tell are, are sharing communion with us, when the people around us uh, we're we're singing together and we're praying together and we're hearing God's word together, and we're receiving God's uh, benediction, His His good word, His word of blessing, that that just helps me believe on a deeper level. There's so much to it, and uh, you're just not you're just not meant to live alone. Uh, that when when God says it's not good for man to be alone. That's very much a, a spiritual com, uh, comment. That's good. good. The, the church really is a gift from God. And, and now it's interesting in the very question that was asked, uh, the importance of a believer being part of the body. Mm-hmm. Just that idea of the church as the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. It, it, why would it you not is, want to be part of that? Why would you not want to be part of that? <laughs> you know, and you hear people say, well, I... I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. Well, that's like saying, I like you, but I don't like your body. Yeah. Which doesn't make sense. Um, the church is not optional. Right. It, it, trying to survive without the church is like trying to cut off a finger and throw it on the floor and say, it'll be fine. Yeah. It'll be fine not being connected to the body. Uh, it, you just won't. You'll wither up. You'll bleed out. Um, that doesn't mean you have to go to the same church your whole life, but... It does mean you need to be for the church and you need to find a church where you can live with God's people, use your gifts and grow and uh, not abandon the church, but uh, love her and and love her even when you're hurt. Find a church that feeds your soul and go. Amen. Okay, another church question. Uh, On the issue of baptism... Is the mode of baptism, sprinkling versus full immersion, primarily a practical issue, or is there a deeper theological justification for either or both? Well, I love all three modes of baptism. There are three modes. There are, is a sprinkling, there is pouring of water, and there is immersion in water. And all three symbolize three different things that are all three true of a believer. Uh, sprinkling is a picture of purification. Uh, it, it comes from the Old Testament um, tradition of draw, uh, dipping a hyssop or a hand in, in the blood of the sacrificed animal and sprinkling that uh, blood on the head of whatever is being purified. Uh, they would actually sprinkle all the furniture in the tabernacle or in the temple. The book of Hebrews talks about that. And the actual word that Hebrews uses there is that the furniture is being baptized when the blood of the... Uh, the dove or the lamb is being sprinkled on uh, the, those fur- that furniture. 
Uh, and that's, that's a beautiful picture of being cleansed by the blood of Christ. His sacrifice is being applied to our, us, and, and we're, we're cleansed by it. We're sanctified by it. Uh, the second picture is a picture of pouring, um, and, and that's the picture of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon uh, believers. And, uh, and, that, and I love that picture of how uh, if anyone, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and believes in me, out of his belly will, will flow rivers of living water. Uh, the Holy, uh, P, Paul, uh, I'm sorry, getting ahead of myself here. Uh, John the Baptist said, uh, you know, I, I, after me comes one who will baptize you in the, in the Holy Spirit. And that is a, that's why we pour. And, and I do both of those when I baptize. I usually sprinkle in the name of the Father and in the Son, and then I pour in the name of the Holy Spirit. Because I love both of those pictures, that picture of, of newness coming out of you, the Holy Spirit flowing from you. And then immersion is a picture of, of death uh, and, and rising again, and going under the waters throughout the Bible has always been a, it's a picture of, of death um, and, and coming out of the water is a picture of newness of life. And that goes all the way back to uh, really creation when the waters were over the, the land and, and earth, the, the, land and the animals you know first land came out of the water and then animals on the land and then uh you have the noahic uh flood where the earth is is immersed in water and the new life comes back uh as, as the waters recede and so that that's a beautiful picture of of going under the powers of death and, and coming out which is certainly a big and important picture of baptism that the old is gone the new has come I love all three. Uh, I don't, you know, in, in history, all three have been used in great ways. All three are, are equally valid, um, and uh, so there, you know, there's theological uh, beauty in all three modes. And I, I often say that I, I wish I could do all three. I would sprinkle in the name of the Father, immerse in the name of the Son, and pour in the name of the Spirit uh, if I had a, a baptistry, um, but I don't. And uh, but I love all three pictures. In it. And there's a lot more we could say about baptism, but the question really is just about the mode of baptism. Yeah. So we'll, that's a good answer. Last question. All right. Completely different Completely curveball here. Completely different, yeah. A little bit <laughs> out of left field. But the question is this. When we say marriage vows, we admit things can get poor, sick throughout our marriage, and, and we promise to stay married despite how bad it gets until death. Is the church reading between the lines when they justify divorce for certain sins? When Christ says we've all murdered and all committed adultery and says, let no man separate what God has joined. If divorce is justified by these sins, then the covenant of marriage seems extremely weak. Those are two, two good questions, two things we need to talk about. First, what is a vow? What are the marriage vows? And then secondly, what is that uh, justifies divorce? Why God has given us divorce? Uh, a marriage, the marriage vows are that you will love and cherish each other uh, in sickness and in health, for rich or for poor, forsaking all others. That's part of the marriage vow, uh, that you will not uh, have sex with, that you will not establish a relationship with someone that is uh, going to come in between you and your spouse. So you don't take a vow, I've never at least, uh, administer a marriage vow that says, I will stay married to you even if you commit adultery. The marriage vow is actually, I won't commit adultery. That's that's mm-hmm. the vow. Uh, I will forsake all others and, and love you only until death do us part. 
So adultery is not a part of the vow, at least never, you know, in any Orthodox service I've ever been a part of. And I would, I think I would not encourage anyone to take a vow that they would uh, tell their spouse, yeah, it's okay for you to commit adultery. I'm still going to love you. I think that's unwise, unhealthy, and I don't know anybody who would take that. So that's not the marriage vow. And then we have to look at the issue of adultery. And, and Jesus explains adult. I mean, I'm sorry. We have to look at the issue of divorce. Jesus explains divorce. And he says, Moses gave you divorce because of the hardness of your heart. Moses allowed for divorce. God has given people divorce because of the hardness of their hearts. What he's saying there is divorce is there to protect people, specifically in, in the Old Testament uh, and in the New Testament era, to protect women from being uh, abused, from being left uh, abandoned, because what men would do is they would just abandon their wives, and then their wives, if they did not have a certificate of divorce, were not free to go find someone else who would marry them and take care of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the same is true today, but it's not just of men. It's uh, women, too, now, uh, with the, the greater economic freedoms that we experience. What divorce does is it allows people to say, this marriage is over. I don't have to keep allowing myself to be ruined and, and hurt. Uh, and destroyed by this person's unfaithfulness. I can go and find another spouse. It it protects you from uh, unfaithful, untrustworthy people. And uh, divorce is always a big deal. You're never free to just do it on your own. You should always have the church's input. You should uh, get the church's wisdom on whether or not uh, an offense is is divorce-worthy. If divorce is the only option, uh, reconciliation is... It's better whenever it's possible, but sometimes people just refuse to be reconciled, and they refuse to quit committing adultery, and sometimes divorce is necessary, just like sometimes in surgery, amputation is necessary to save the life of a person. Uh, if, if gangrene or if the, if the infection is so bad in a body part, if there's a cancerous tumor, uh, that has to be cut out. And sometimes uh, a marriage has to be severed to save the life of a person. So in the case of adultery, again, to go back to the vows, um, you know, when we end a marriage saying what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, let no man separate, um, the separation has already occurred. The person who committed adultery and had sex with someone outside the marriage, you've already separated the marriage. You've committed the the separation. Uh, You've divided the the marriage. Uh, What the church does is come in and and try to patch up and heal the person who's been injured so that uh, they can heal, uh, so that they can be made whole. And and just a word to some of you out there who um, are married to people who are unfaithful, or just in in life, there's always an possibility, there's an ability that some people have to turn the words of Scripture against you and use words and, and promises and, and these, these great promises of the Bible to hurt instead of to heal. And whenever you have someone telling you, well, the Bible says you have to take me back, or the Bible says you have to forgive me, if somebody who is the sinning agent, who, is, who has caused the offense, 
If they're demanding forgiveness, that is not a mark of repentance. That is an unsafe person. And you need to go and, and seek the church, seek your elders uh, to protect you from that kind of person. And and I, I didn't used to believe those people existed, Jonathan, but I've dealt with several. Yeah. Uh, and we've in our church, we've had couples that have committed adultery and been reconciled. And we've had couples that have committed adultery and had to be divorced. And I'll say the one thing they had in common is the couples that ended up getting reconciled, they're the the offending party, the adulterous party, always came with absolute open hands saying, if my spouse wants to divorce me, I understand. I have I have ruined this marriage, and that's, that's what I deserve. I hope they won't. Mm-hmm. But if they do, I, I understand. And, all, and at least in two of the divorces I've walked through, three of the divorces I've walked through, I've seen the offending party try to argue and try to save face and, and really try to make their spouse, who they, who they have sinned against, make them feel guilty for seeking out the divorce that, that they caused. And that, that's, a, boy, that's a deep, deep offense. It's hurtful. I appreciate your answer, Ricky. It shows a lot of uh, just, I think, faith in the idea of wisdom, that the Bible does allow for divorce. The question was, is the church reading between the lines to justify divorce? Not at all. This is doing biblical interpretation. And for all throughout church history, we've been clear there is justification. How do you apply that? And, and every, you know, it's a cliche, but it's true. Every situation is different and where people are. And it's beautiful mm-hmm. when marriages are healed after adultery and horrible things happening. But sometimes divorce is not only allowable, but the best course. And it's beautiful to see people who have been sinned against and had to go through divorce um, heal. You know, sometimes they get remarried and that's beautiful. Sometimes they live a peaceful, great life uh, single. Uh, I, there's beauty There's beauty everywhere. There's always beauty in healing and redemption. So whether it's the marriage that gets redeemed uh, or the person after the marriage, uh, I rejoice in both. Yeah. Good, good questions. Keep, keep the questions coming, everybody out there in listener land. <laughs> Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, edition of From Sunday to Monday. We will be back next week with a... Uh, with new episode, please send us your questions. You can email those to info at riveroakstulsa.com or text them in to 539-777-2887. Thank you so much. If you have enjoyed this uh, podcast, would you do us one brief favor? Would you leave just a positive feedback on iTunes or wherever you found it? That is a great way to help what they call search engine optimization, uh, help people find us. And uh, that's the number one way to kind of get higher on iTunes' recommendation list. And uh, if you you hate this and you think it's terrible, you're also welcome to leave uh, negative feedback. uh, And we'll try to get better. I understand. Thanks so much. Have a great week. And we'll talk to you next week.